73.9% of practice owners said they didn't have the time they needed to effectively lead their team. So that's, you know, nearly three quarters of people who own a veterinary practice said they needed more time to lead their team. And that was unsurprising, but I suppose from my point of view, maybe a little depressing. Can you put real numbers to the importance of workplace culture? They found out. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders community online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I am your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today, the duo dancing with the data are doctors Dave Nickel and Dermot McInerney. Dave is the founder of VetX, full disclosure, and Dermot is head of Vet Partnerships. And they both worked on gathering the small but mighty data sample on what makes for good and bad workplace culture in veterinary hospitals. So what do time management, vision, inappropriate staff behavior, and recruitment have to do with it all? We'll get into that. Okay, so maybe this is a little strange. This feels like pulling the in-house team for uh, VetX International's Veterinary Business Success Show because I've uh, got uh, Dermot and Dave, and they're both you know instrumental with VetX. And I have them here to talk about a study they did, uh, published uh, six months ago, and they're working on a study. Oh, Dave just flashed it. I wish we had, right. If only this were video, leadership actions and their effects on veterinary practice culture. And the date, yeah, was published in September, 2021. We're going to talk about that. And maybe at the end, a sneak peek of the study you are gathering responses for now. But first, let's talk about that first study the two of you worked on. And I kind of want to know at the beginning, obviously it's about veterinary. Would you say, who was your audience for this study? What were you hoping to do with it when you gathered the information? Sure. So, I mean, really we're looking at people that have a leadership role in practice. We were um, looking to, that's kind of who we wanted to take part in the study to start with. And we wanted to try and help educate people in that, in that space as well. So that's, that's really who we were looking for. And we were relatively successful with that. We um, sort of had uh, just under 100 practice owners and managers and people with leadership roles in veterinary practice get back to us to, with, the, with the information for the study, which was, which was great. And then we basically went through and produced this, produced this bit of work, which we're hoping then to take back and take back to the same audience uh, and to educate them on some of the leadership things they can go out to practice to put into place into their own clinics and hopefully make uh, some positive changes to their practice culture with so that was really the basis for the study that was our goal when we when we set out uh, and i think they were pretty pleased with how it, how it turned out would you say dave yeah i'm very happy the way it turned out and thinking on the motivation for doing it was just the general lack of objective information upon which leaders can make decisions you know one of in fact the most important thing we wanted to try to prove or disprove was whether or not it was actually worth talking about culture at all because it's such a nebulous term okay perfect i'm glad you used the word nebulous because i was going to say uh, it's an everything in the kitchen sink term and on on this podcast we've talked to a number of people and i feel like everybody has a slightly different take on what culture is so did you all in crafting the study before it went out have a clear vision for what you meant by workplace culture and are you sure that the people who answered it also thought the same thing about workplace culture yeah, so part A is yes, part B okay. is probably not. <laughs> okay. I think we just have to be honest about that because that is the problem with social science research is 
you know, when you're measuring a drug dose, you're controlling an awful lot of variables, although you're putting that drug into completely, you know, a, a massive meat sack of systems that can work differently, but largely work the same. And you're trying to control for as many variables as possible so you can isolate an effect. And, you know, you have quality double-blinded trials with placebos so you can sort of try and measure the impact of, of one versus the other in control groups. That's a little bit harder to do with certain other subjects and social science research is in that category. And I think that is kind of an acknowledgement at the outset, and we acknowledge that in the study as well, that you're working with opinions. So it's very much a, you know, a qualitative piece of research. I think you'd agree with that. Yeah, and whenever you're, you're looking at research at leadership in general and you're reading books about what good leadership looks like, they talk about a lot of the, the factors we mentioned in our study. So things like vision and you know, your own time management and dealing with difficult behavior is stuff that you see in nearly any good leadership book, but there's actually a lot. Putting that down into any sort of number is really difficult. And then finding that specific for a, a veterinary practice as to how that helps culture is sort of slim to none you know trying to find anything that sort of quantifies it in any sort of meaningful way is is difficult I mean we were looking at the score for people we asked leaders essentially how they felt their culture supported their business objectives so we did give them some direction and the sort of their own definition of culture was kind of open-ended but they had to tell us how well they felt and how supportive they felt that culture was to the veterinary practice so you know, there's an, an element of being, you know, what you, I suppose, what with culture in general, you feel like if you can't measure it, people tend to ignore it and feel like it's not important. And we wanted to put a number to it to help us sort of make it more important and make that to sort of uh, carve out that discussion and see whether or not this, the facts that we looked at actually had any meaningful impact on culture and the practice uh, at all, even if people had different definitions of what they felt culture was. That's right. I mean, and and I think the definition of culture is is less important. We have a very clear definition of culture, and I think there is a very good definition of culture. I, I don't think there's a lot of different versions of what culture is, actually. You know, you put culture down, it is the summation of all of the behaviors that are playing out from all of the individuals in a business that crystallize out to become the norm. So that implies there's a, a controllable element to culture which means it's not actually as nebulous a thing as we might think it is. And what we set out to do really was to answer two questions. Number one, does culture matter? Should we be focusing on it? Now, we had our own agenda there because we completely think it does, but we don't have any data in veterinary medicine to support that, or we didn't. So we wanted to answer that question, and we wanted to answer it because day after day, when we're having conversations with leaders and practices and practice owners, they constantly tell us, they're too busy for things like this, the softer skills. Uh, veterinarians tell us the same thing about the professional skills, you know, the, the non-clinical skills. We're too busy. But there is more than a deep suspicion that these are the skills that will move us from a place of pain to a place of something better. So question one was, does culture matter? And question two is, if it matters, what elements of it are things that are controllable that we as leaders can then act on to change culture. Let me ask, so having done that, did you find what you thought you would? Did the results show up? Oh, that's exactly what I was expecting. 
I would say yes and no is my take on it. And Dermot, you may have a slightly different take. We were discussing the, the results and the raw data. And I was driving along to go pick up my daughter from school. And Dermot started telling me the numbers. And I was I was blown away by the fact that we basically ask people to self-assess their culture. Now, right there, we have introduced a bias and, and it's highly unlikely that you're going to torpedo your own culture, regardless of how bad it is. Right. You're talking to the owners and managers. You're not asking Joe and Jill at the bottom of the pyramid. Right. And there, there's another bias in the research because we're actually asking this. We were at the Fetch conference online virtually and we were at the SPIVS VMG management conference here in the United Kingdom. And we launched the survey, the data survey at both conferences. And that's where we gathered the data from both sides of the Atlantic. So people who go to conferences are people who care about things like management and learning these skills. So this right. is the upper end of the, the spectrum of people who care. You don't mark yourself down like, oh, I'm going to totally grasp myself up as having just this horrible culture. Like <laughs> that's not the way the bias is going to work. Like you're going to overscore yourself. So the numbers that we got were still, I think, quite startling given those things. And so I was quite surprised that the numbers were as variable as they were, but it was so delightful to be able to actually, we used a very simple, because I think simple is probably the, the best way to go, a very simple grading system when we ask people to self-grade their culture. And, and I'll, I'll let Dermot speak to that a little bit. But it was almost the things that were, follow on from the survey that were also just as interesting. So there were things that were, I think, okay, given what everybody says to me anecdotally as the number one reason why people don't commit time to leadership or don't, you know, if, if people take our class and they, they don't get through it, or if they drop off a course or something like that, the number one by miles reason is that they just didn't have time to get to it. And you will know Brendan, from your conversations through all the interactions you've had with practice managers around America, that's that's going to be a common theme, that they're just too busy. Like everyone's too busy. And that predates coronavirus. Like managers were always too busy right, spinning plates. And so that showed up really, really obviously within the study results. The other things I think are things that are perhaps less clear. And again, we get into some more slightly esoteric or nebulous words like vision. There's another bucket into which a whole lot of misunderstanding and, and misconception uh, gets thrown or it finds itself in. You know, toxicity, or what is that? So good questions I always find lead to further, even better questions and you get more into the detail of it. But yeah, I, I think the results were interesting, enlightening, in line with what I thought, but there were some also really interesting unexpected takeaways from it as well. So you sort of had these four pillars in there. You mentioned three of them. So time management, it sounded like you were, you thought culture was important, but how important and trying to talk people into that it's important when they have these problems. So you're trying to hook that you think culture, you have a better culture. This is part of your solution. So you have a problem, culture could be the solution. So time management, you don't have time to work on culture. So you thought, well, does time management play into that? A vision for the practice was your second pillar. And you mentioned toxicity and you kind of locked down in the question there, which was kind of 
I think you wrote it out as toxic behavioral issues that cause stress or damage to morale going unresolved, which I think every single person working in veterinary practice understands how either that's a cultural or a personal issue with at least one person on the team that I know something that we let slide that causes problems all the time. And then maybe the fourth one, and you were honest about the fact that this was the one that maybe the survey didn't pin down was how does recruiting clinical talent effectively, how does that play into creating culture, maintaining it, all that? And you were kind of like, oh, I was the one you were least comfortable to establish. So I, I don't know, maybe Dermot, you could tell me a little bit with those four pillars, what were the kind of the high level, most interesting results you saw as it played in with this idea that these things do affect culture one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, I find the, the results of this like super interesting and I got really geeky and nerdy about it and then <laughs> oh good Dave I was probably a little bit too excited while while doing it maybe I'll find some things <laughs> let's do it let's talk about it we just lost Dermot for like two months he went off the grid completely I did I disappeared a little bit you disappeared in a Dermot nerd hole <laughs> it was brilliant it, the way it, I suppose it, it kind of probably helps if we talk about the way it came about. We sort of sat down before the conference and we're talking before the conferences and the events and we're talking about what useful information can we gather from all these people and with all this experience we're going to get in these big online rooms, uh, essentially. And we sort of sat down beforehand yeah. and said, right, can we identify three or four things that we think affect culture? Because we know we, we talk to people, practice managers, practice owners all day, every day. We know that doing work in these areas, you know, they feel like they get a better culture as a result of it, but we don't. I think don't think we actually knew beforehand which bit of the work we were doing actually had an effect. Was there one thing we were hitting exactly that you know makes culture? You know, is it that you sort your time issues and your culture just gets far better, and actually the rest of it just sorts itself out? Like, <laughs> right, right. Deal with it, or you know, we we didn't know any of that beforehand. So we sat down and we sort of identified four we really wanted to know about. So. Do you have a clearly articulated vision for your practice? Um, do you have time to work on leadership priorities? Are there toxic behavioral issues going unresolved? And can you effectively recruit and hire uh, clinical talent? So those are the four things you wanted to assess. And you had to have a leadership role to answer it. And then uh, it was basically a yes or no. And then you scored your culture out of 10 uh, as to how that supported your, okay. uh, your objective. That was really how it worked at the event. And the thing is, the thing that was most surprising for me was that the number of people that didn't have these sort of factors in place when they're they're leading the the team. So, forty four point seven percent of the people we talked to either didn't have or weren't aware of a clearly articulated vision in their practice. Which, and can I ask, were you surprised by that? I was certainly. I think that's beautiful. Like you're like, I was surprised. Geez, how could you not have a vision? So I have a little sidebar thought on this one which requires follow-up but remember the people taking this survey are all leaders and i thought this number was far too high yeah and i think it reflects the fact we were asking leaders and i think we we see this in some of the data further on of when you break it down when we broke the information down further and we asked that question of the practice owner managers that the actual number of them that thought they had a vision, a clearly articulated vision, was a much higher number, right? We could break it down by job role in the end. So when we looked, so there was roughly 44% of people said they didn't have a, a clearly identified vision. When you went to sort of practice owners, 65% of practice owners thought, yeah, we've got a vision in place and everybody knows what that is. When you went to look at practice managers, so maybe the next in command, that dropped to 34.2%. So... 
That's the practice managers. Yeah, <laughs> about half of those owners had a vision but could hadn't articulated it to their managers. Well, that's what the data looked like anyway. And that makes total sense. That makes complete sense, doesn't it? Like it's, I was not surprised by that just because the number of times, it's a vanishingly small number of people who answer the question, have you got a clearly articulated vision in practice? Like, or maybe people are just shy when you ask roomfuls of people this and they're a bit more brave to say this when it's an anonymous survey. But the number of people that have done the exercise and then they've left that vision in a drawer somewhere or it's posted on the back of their, you know, the practice owner's wall or it's in the staff handbook, but it's treated as a box tick exercise. And so that the information, the really valuable information that's in that statement doesn't come to life. And that is the really ground zero for culture farming and the creation of culture. And if if you don't open that wellspring up and let it flow through your business, then your culture almost by definition will default to a culture of personality, a culture of unintentionality, uh, which leads to quite a few of the problems that we, we see in practices. So I thought it was really interesting that, that the practice owners thought they had, practice managers, it falls away, and you can bet that that trend gets precipitously lower as you get into the, the staff, for sure. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. Dermot, have you had a different experience where, I don't know, maybe you've worked in businesses or places where it seemed like they did have a vision, so you were surprised to see that many people, I guess, admit that there wasn't a vision or to say that they didn't think there was. Was that the big shocking thing for you? I think, I suppose, even the... It was, it was more looking at the, I think I'm aware, like in the practices, maybe the vision doesn't filter down depending on the practice you've been in to, uh, okay, to, the, yeah. to the sort of ground level where I've been working, you know, most of my career. And, you know, I, I, I had some really great practice I'd worked in where that sort of was clear and you had lots of history work too, and that went down. But I suppose the bit that surprised me was that this was a, these were conferences focusing on leadership and management. We were talking to the two most senior positions in veterinary practices and then nearly 45 percent of them hadn't done what i have found to be chapter one in a lot of these books (laughs) and what the teaching goes on that they just they didn't have it that was the bit i suppose that was more more surprising for me i think if you taken that and then you know taking it down to your vets and your techs and your reception and csr staff i think you know 
getting down to about 40% of people probably would be about right. I just expected it to yeah. be higher in that in the group of people we were talking to. Yeah, you thought the leaders would be more optimistic about whether they had a vision and then gotten it across. Maybe. Uh, Let's talk about the one that kind of a big issue that you identified. So the time management. So tell me what you found about time management. I feel like a lot of veterinary professionals look at this as the, this is the immovable rock. So we are busy and there is nothing to do about that. So how did time management come into this vision of culture? Whenever I, you know, I'm talking to people who are coming to do work within the VetEx community, the biggest barrier for all of them is time. And for every boss in a veterinary practice I've ever had before, time seems to be the issue. I haven't got time for that. There's no time for this. Just, oh, just get that done. I haven't time for it. And that seemed to be the biggest barrier. And I really, I really wanted to see how much of a block that was and what sort of difference it would have in practice if you had if the the owner or the clinical director just had the time to lead the team and wasn't worrying, you know, necessarily with lots of clinical work or administrative stuff and getting tied down in in other in other work, so this was this was my actually my favourite metric to look at. And you know, <laughs> I, again, the split was really really interesting because you know I think we were again it's in and around the sort of forty percent mark. I think forty two percent said they didn't have the time they needed to lead the team effectively. But when you split that up again and you look to practice owners, and this is exactly what I expected to find. This is where I suppose it matched up with my expectations was that 73.9% of practice owners said they didn't have the time they needed to effectively lead their team. So that's you know nearly three okay. quarters of people who own a veterinary practice said they needed more time to lead their team. And that was unsurprising, but I suppose from my point of view, maybe a little depressing when we were looking at it. And then particularly when we brought it into into cultural scores, which is something maybe we haven't touched on as much yet, but it was then it was then clear from the work that we did that not having time to work on leadership priorities meant that your culture wasn't as good. And I think that's something that's that's really important. It's everybody, all the leaders we talked to nearly have the same issue with time. It's a problem across the board, but we know now that it does affect culture and affects culture significantly. Um, so this was my this was my favorite metric to look at just for that reason, because I think it's possibly, for me anyway, the most powerful takeaway I took from it. It feels like it's the enabler, doesn't it? It's, I think you hit the nail on the head, Brennan, when you said it's the immovable object. And I think that's the problem. Like we are addicted. The, the crack cocaine of veterinary medicine is clinical work. And the very, very most addictive form of that is ER work whether that's in an ER facility, but actually probably not because they're set up to handle those cases. It's it's the emergency work that walks into the general practice that throws the spanner in the wrench every day. You can have meetings set aside to work on any aspect of leadership you want, whether that's team one-to-ones, whether that's conversations to address toxic behavior, whether that's time out to do strategic planning or to work on a, a vision. When you've got an hour or two booked in the diary, that's a really big step forward that most people don't do. They just say, oh, I've got a quieter day, I'll do it then. And of course, the day fills up, so they never get the chance. And where we see this playing out the most is perhaps strategically not getting the opportunity to have these meetings or the one-to-ones that we're having, particularly with graduates, when we're saying, look, we're going to mentor graduates, we're going to give them this time, this support, and then the clinical work overwhelms and the meeting gets bumped. And of course, in our job advert, 
we've said, hey, we'll give you lots of support and we'll mentor you. <laughs> right. And the meeting gets bumped and it doesn't get moved to another point. It just gets forgotten about. And then a month, two months, three months have gone by because they go in the blink of an eye. And the graduate's thinking, well, hey, hold on. I was promised support. I was promised mentoring. But it's not there. And it's, it's, nobody's, it's nobody being purposefully evasive. But it is, a, it is somebody's responsibility. It is somebody's fault. And it's the leader's responsibility to make sure those meetings are happening. And it's also the veterinarian's responsibility to make sure those meetings are happening. And for as long as we are willing to continually and repeatedly die on the hill of clinical medicine, which we do every single day, metaphorically, we don't have the energy for other things because we're we're getting laced out on that hill every day. And so this is kind of where the word intentional has become my most loved word. We have to make a choice. We have to choose to put something down. And so something has to die. And that leads to the, the whole crux, the problem with leadership. This was actually one of the fun things the this, this study sort of was able to uncover. There's, there is so many actions in leadership. And there's another bucket word there. You've got culture, you've got vision, you've got leadership. What do they all mean? But if we think leadership is our operating system, of all, all the, the things that we could do in order to, to lead this group of people on this mission, this, you know, this grand vision that we've created, the things that we work on, creating a vision, writing out and building out a recruitment process, working on your values and giving feedback to the team and building those values, uh, making career training plans that are two, three years out in scope. Yeah, it's all long range stuff that, that's going to take weeks, months. When we start working on leadership programs with practices, it's going to take 12 months to create all the, the components. Like it's, it's heavy lifting. So it's hard. People often balk at the commitment, but what, what do you want? Wh which kind of way do you want your pain to be? Do you want it ongoing? This is the never-ending grind of veterinary medicine till you burn out, or do you want to fix it and then you own your business, not the other way around? So there's you have to be willing to put something down, and that's hard because the something we're asking people to put down is the clinical crack cocaine, and the reason that is so good is because immediately it scratches our problem solver itch immediately it scratches our insta results itch like the medicine worked in a week or the surgery worked and the animal is now feeling better and it brings in revenue right away and leadership doesn't do any of those things it takes time to build the exception being getting somebody toxic out of your practice which has the biggest positive impact on your culture and bringing somebody who's a great team fit into your practice those things are both utterly and almost immediately transformational. So I did want to mention all those things you talked about when talking about culture, vision, leadership, time management, those are all sort of proactive, productive, positive changes to make over time that lead to long-term effects. And then you found the number one business impact on culture. When we used to do surveys for the magazines I used to work for, the number one problem that owners and managers always said they had, and it only got beat out one time by a recession, then finances became the number one worry of practice owners and managers, was always, quote unquote, personnel management. And we know what personnel management means. It's possible it meant hiring and firing, but I don't think so. I think it meant managing the people's personalities, managing the squabbles and managing that delicate balance that practice owners and managers do all the time where they have a person who does some things very well. And as you, they don't want to let that go. So as you've talked about, if you have a busy day, something has to go for you to make room for something more positive. And I think I'm curious to hear what the survey showed about what I think in many practices, 
something has to go, either someone's attitude or the way they do things, or that particular employee has to go. And people are always hesitant to deal with that confrontation. And now that we're short-staffed, it's even harder. So maybe tell me what you found about this issue of toxic behavioral issues that are harming morale and causing stress and quote unquote, according to the survey question, going unresolved. Yeah. So, I mean, this was probably the least surprising bit for me. I think if you've ever worked anywhere, I think if you've had to deal with, I put it down as toxic behavioral issues because I didn't, I wanted it to be more than just sort of personnel management. I wanted to know, you know, are we having, you know, severe issues going on in the practice that you would describe as toxic? And that was the question. That's how he phrased the question uh, with it as well. You know, we find that having that going unresolved just tanks your culture score. It's the single biggest negative impact on veteran practices of the four that we uh, that we looked at. And the bit that was a little bit more surprising from my end was that it was about four in 10 practices had toxic behavioral issues that they would describe as being unresolved going on in the clinic at the minute. The actual cultural number was basically, it was seven. You a cultural score of 7.5 out of 10 if you had no toxic behavioral issues going on and that dropped to 6.2 if you had them going unresolved and you could see all the really, really low scoring individual responses we got, that was one of the boxes that they had ticked. You know, you'd see occasionally people coming in with a cultural score of two or three and pretty much across the board. That was at least one of the the factors that they said that they had problems with uh, at the minute. And I think that, you know, having worked in practice and, and you know, even before being in veterinary clinics, working in bars and hotels and things like that, it's the people you work with, I think, that create the culture as well. So having that uh, going on resolved was probably a little bit unsurprising for me. You know, how you would then go about dealing with that is over today, I suppose. But it's uh, that side of it. (laughs) uh, uh, Less surprising at my end. I wonder if veterinary professionals who they they get a job somewhere and they're there uh, for any length of time, and maybe they feel a little siloed and their problem feels unique as if whatever the toxic behavior there or the toxic situation there is somehow something that we can't quite wrestle through. And I think maybe, you know, folks helping people at VEDEX have a larger meta view of, no, there's kind of ways you can walk people through this. But I I wonder a lot of times, maybe default, maybe you could give me, both of you could give me your answer to this question. Do you think it is reticence to confront the issue? Or do you think actually they don't think this is a fixable issue? So they could get rid of the person and that causes such a bad problem, they don't want to do it. So is it, I don't want to deal with it, or is it I don't actually see a solution? I think one is almost a corollary to the other. Okay. <laughs> so I think for years it was we don't want to because we're uncomfortable to have the, the conflict conversation. You know, if you look at the disc profiles of everyone in veterinary medicine, they're not everybody, but there's a huge number of people who are the the sort of steady S. And just they want things to be steady. They don't like conflict. And so and it's it's rare to find humans who actually enjoy conflict. So we just didn't want to have those conversations. But of course, we've been burning people out for years. And burnout's caused by a you know an ongoing and unrelenting negative emotional state where you just become emotionally exhausted, physically exhausted potentially as well. And it's stress and you know, the quality of our, our lives is determined largely by the quality of our relationships. So, you know, it, it's unresolved tension and conflict in toxic cultures. And I would define toxic as any situation where a human being is failing to thrive. 
Now, sometimes you can have individuals who are just a bad fit. It's actually a very good culture. But I was asked this question, you know, what makes a toxic culture? And I think, you know, we, we want humans to flourish. We want humans to grow. That's how, you know, one of the most important things for humans to be happy. So anything that causes us to diminish in some way or to wither is potentially something we should be considering toxic. Now you've got the really obvious stuff like bullying and, and ego and you've, you know, basically uh, skill terrorism where you've got, you know, people who are extremely good at their job but are just, for right. want of a better phrase, assholes. <laughs> you know, high IQ, high aptitude, but really awful EQ and hold businesses you know, to ho hostage basically because their skills are, are very high. Those are ego and you know lack of EQ, but but really you've other things like you know insecurities where you get people forming cliques to to prop up their fragile egos, and then you've got other things. I mean, I think if if you boil all the reasons for toxicity down, perhaps you can look at insecurity, perfectionism, and a lack of emotional intelligence as being really common ingredients in all of them because in, insecurity is an insecure ego causes you know, bullying, it causes clique formation, perfectionism and driving people to martyr ourselves on the hill and just keep it going, keep it going, keep it going, causes a lot of burnout, you know, like martyrdom and our inability to navigate through situations of conflict, making us quite averse to that, I think is, is a lack of emotional intelligence and a lack of, a lack of the communication tools required to do that because they're not actually that horrible, those conversations to have once you get going. But the net effect of years of doing that, then we hit a pandemic where people are, you know, people were leaving and we hit a pandemic where people are burning out faster than ever. And now we've hit a crisis point where I think you're right, Brendan, now people are just really scared to have the conversations because the pain and the length of time it's taking to replace the staff, it's, they almost see it as a better option. It's less painful if they just keep this person on because at least it's a bum in a seat. Even though like bits, it's like the shuttle coming in to re-entry and it's burning up. There's just bits of like the heat cladding and they're falling off in orbit in the sky and the wings kind of like you're hanging on by like a couple of bolts. You're like, oh my God, I just hope I get to the ground. And and of course, you know, you're hostage. No wonder. I think owners are burning out possibly at the fastest rate of anybody because I think they carry the greatest level of stress of clinical and human pressure you know there's no greater pressure i think in veterinary practice than making payroll and you know having worked as a doctor for 20 years and as a business owner for 10 to 15 of those years like that pressure is real and that's the biggest pressure i feel and the biggest responsibility on my shoulders go take the veer survey right now vedexinternational.com forward slash veer v-e-e-r that wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know... I appreciate you.